fitting that we sang the song this morning already that if God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And uh, we watched that video, and, and doesn't that ring true? That if God is fighting for you, who could ever come against you? We saw that scripture passage last week as well. That if Big Mike is with me and Big Mike is for me, does anyone remember that story from last week? How much more, if God is with us, then who could ever stop us? And indeed, that's the God that we serve. The same God that Joshua followed, the same God who sent the hail, who stopped the sun, is the same God we worship today. And we come to him with that anticipation of him uh, working on our behalf and on behalf of his children. Would you bow with me now as we prepare to enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That even as we hear the stories of your work in this world from many thousands of years ago, that today we have the confidence that you are the same. The same God who intervened on behalf of Joshua, the same God who inspired the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit to write the words that we will study this morning. You are the same today. Your Holy Spirit is present, gathering in the midst of your people. And even more that, through faith in you, you indwell our hearts, that we should be temples of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, today we ask that by your Spirit you would open our minds to your word, open our hearts to receive it. And even further, Father, I pray that you would stir us into action, that through this challenge this morning, through your word, we would each see our place in this and respond as you would have each one of us. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin this morning with the well-known story of an abbot at a monastery who called his new novice into the office and instructed him that he would be preaching the sermon at the very next morning's chapel. Now, this young novice had never preached before, had hardly even studied on how to prepare a sermon, and so, not surprisingly, he was struck with fear. Nevertheless, the instructions had been given, and so the very next morning, chapel came. And so the novice stood in the pulpit. The brothers were all assembled. His hands were trembling. His knees were knocking. His voice was dry and quivering. There was a long pause, and everyone waited to see what this young novice could possibly say. And finally, he asked the question, Do you know what I'm going to say? Well, they had no idea, so all of them shook their heads, No. Then he said, Neither do I. Let's stand for the benediction. Well, not surprisingly, the abbot was less than impressed. In fact, he was quite angry. And so he told the young novice that this was never going to fly and that he was going to have to do it right the next morning's chapel. So get ready because you're preaching tomorrow morning. And so again, the next day, the novice stood in the pulpit. And again, his hands shook, his knees knocked, his voice trembled, and he asked, Do you know what I'm going to say? Well, after the previous day's experience, they had a pretty good idea. So all of their heads nodded up and down. Yes. Then he said, well, then there's no need for me to tell you. Let's stand for the benediction. Well, now the abbot was beyond furious. And so he ordered the young man into his office and he, and he reamed him out up and down. And he said, if you do that again, 
You're going to be in solitary confinement. You're going to eat bread and water for a month and receive any other punishment that I could possibly think of. And so tomorrow morning, you are going to get back in that pulpit and you're going to preach the sermon and you're going to do it right. And so the next day, chapel attendance hit an all-time high. Everyone waited with bated breath to see what the novice would say. Would he pull the same stunt? And so again, the novice stood in the pulpit, hands shaking, knees knocking, voice trembling, and after a long silence, sure enough, he asked, Do you know what I'm going to say? Well, after three days of this, about half of them had a pretty good idea, and so they nodded their heads up and down. Yes, we know what you're going to say. The other half, however, had noticed the slight deviation from day to day, and so they weren't quite as sure what to expect, and so they shook their heads, no. Well, the, no- the novice observed the confusion, and then he said simply, well, let those of you who know tell those of you who don't. Now, let's stand for the benediction. Now, I give this little story to add one small wrinkle to his sermon. That when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let those of you who know tell those of you who don't. When it comes to the gospel, let those of you who know tell those of you who don't. Pastor Samuel Wilberforce once said this, Christianity can be condensed into four words. Admit, submit, commit, and transmit. Four words. Admit, we recognize and admit that we are sinners and lost eternally. Submit. Realizing our helpless position, we submit ourselves. We surrender ourselves to Christ as Lord and Savior, recognizing that we can do nothing on our own to earn this. We submit. Thirdly, we commit ourselves. Committing is fully entrusting every aspect of our lives to follow Christ's leadership. And fourth is transmit. That is, we communicate the gospel message to others who don't yet know Christ. So admit, submit, commit, and transmit. Now, so far in our journey through Romans, we have covered those first three points of admit, submit, and commit quite extensively already. Last week alone in in the conclusion to Romans chapter 8, there at the majestic summit of the gospel, we rejoiced that now we are more than conquerors, hyper-Nike, more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. We are so secure in Christ that nothing in all of creation could ever separate us from the love of God. This is how secure we are. And we celebrate, we rejoice in this security. But now in Romans chapter 9, Paul begins to direct our focus towards this fourth point that now that we are secure in Christ, we have admitted our need for a Savior, we're helpless, we've submitted to Him, we've committed our lives to Him. Now we're moving into this fourth phase of transmitting what we have received to others. For you see, the gospel was never meant or designed to be kept secretly in our own possession. The gospel was never meant for us to simply have it and and hoard it for ourselves. It is instead designed in such a way as to be shared. And therefore, our enjoyment actually is taken further. You see, there's a story in the gospels that sort of uh, paints a picture of what can so often happen to us as believers. 
There we see the example where Jesus went up the Mount of Transfiguration. And there he would be transfigured before his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. And they would see his unveiled glory as he, as he spoke there with Moses and Elijah. And there in this parlay, they, they just simply fell on their faces, uh, unbelieving the, the glory that was revealed before them. And after the, the switch for the glory gets turned off, as it were, and Jesus is back in his regular form as far as they're concerned, their eyes, I'm sure, still had the imprint of the glory that they had just had revealed to them. And so Peter says to the Lord, he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let's build a few little, little tabernacles, a few little huts, and let's stay here. It's good to be here. And Jesus, he doesn't flat out rebuke Peter, but he basically says, no, Peter, we're going back down the mountain. Because you see, at the bottom of the mountain, as soon as he gets down, there's more people who needed him. There was more people who needed ministry, more people who needed a savior. In fact, at the bottom of the mountain, he continues to cast out an, an unclean spirit from a child. And so here we see there was this temptation that Peter had. He wanted to just stay where the glory was. He wanted to stay on top of the mountain. And so too for us, we come through Romans 8 and we want to stay where the glory is. I am secure in Christ. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. And, and we want to just stay there. But just as Jesus told his disciples to follow him back down the mountain and get back to the work of the ministry, to the broken, to the needy, Paul is now telling us in Romans chapter 9 to do the same. And so if you haven't yet done so, please open your Bibles to Romans 9. And there I'll highlight for you our first point as we enter this text. Our witness for Christ is empowered not by obligation, but by passion. Our witness for Christ is empowered not by obligation, but by passion. Paul begins Romans chapter 9, verse 1, by once again laying bare his heart's passion to see the lost come to salvation. Verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to stop right there and ask the question. Why in the world does Paul have to qualify what he's about to say to such an extent? To, to like say, I'm not lying. Is he by this saying he was lying beforehand? <laughs> you know, that now he's saying I'm not lying? Of course not. He's simply adding emphasis to what he's about to say because it's that weighty. He's saying, what I'm about to say, most anyone would accuse me of lying. So he has to put up the disclaimer ahead of time. I am not lying. My conscience is clear and it's in, in fact confirmed by the Holy Spirit. So what is he about to say? Verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Here it is. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now, this is a weighty statement that Paul just made, so we're going to unpack it a little bit. Just so we're clear what he's talking about. We're going to flip over one page to Romans chapter 10 verse 1. We're going to jump ahead for a second because this is actually a bookend to what he starts off in Romans 9. Romans 10 verse 1 he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved. 
So he's talking about Israel collectively as a nation. He's saying, my heart's burning desire, my prayer is nothing more than my fellow Israelites, the Jews, could be saved. This is bookending this entire passage. Now we go back to the beginning of chapter 9. Listen to what he says one more time. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is not small words Paul is using here. Sorrow and unceasing anguish. This is not something he thinks about once in a while. This is ongoing for him. He is sorrowful and filled with anguish that his fellow Jews are not in Christ. This bothers him. This bothers him deeply, so much so that it's ongoing. And in this we hear the echo of the words of Moses way back in Exodus. And they're following the people's grievous sin of worshiping the golden calf while he was up on Mount Sinai. He comes back down and God says, Moses, step aside. These people are not worth saving. Step aside. I'll make a new nation out of you and I'm going to wipe them out. And this is what Moses says to the Lord on Israel's behalf. Exodus 32, 32, Moses says, But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Blot me out of the book you have written. So here we go back, and Paul is saying, I wish that I myself would be cursed and cut off from Christ if only it meant that my fellow Jews could be saved. Now, what is he saying by that? What is he meaning to be cut off from Christ? Well, don't miss it. He is, in fact, implying he would forfeit his own salvation and, in fact, thereby go to hell if that would mean that his fellow Jews could be saved and go to heaven. Moses is saying almost the identical thing on behalf of Israel. Lord, spare them, but if not, then wipe me out with them. Just blot me out of your book. These are loaded words, and now you see why he had to put the disclaimer ahead of, ahead of time to say, I'm not lying, my conscience is clear. And when I consider that Paul, that Moses, were so committed to the salvation of the people that God had entrusted to them, that they were in fact willing to be damned themselves in order that they could be saved, and when I consider putting myself in that same place, and I go back to Romans chapter 8, and I just say, Lord, my salvation is so precious to me. It's so dear to me to know that I am saved, that I'm going to heaven when I die. It's so precious to me that to consider forfeiting that, giving that up, it just gives me cold chills. Now, of course, when Paul wrote these words, he wasn't inferring or implying that God, in fact, works this way. He was not implying that God was somehow into the barter system, that you can trade your salvation for someone else's. Because, of course, Paul knows you can't do that. He wasn't teaching you could do that, that we can somehow trade our salvation for someone else. Because, of course, Scripture teaches, including Paul himself, that everyone, every last person, is personally responsible to God for their own decision of whether or not they will receive or reject his one way of salvation through Jesus Christ. No one can make that decision for anyone else. Everyone will be responsible before God for themselves. And so the, the closest thing you could think of, for most of us, I think, if you're a parent, and you consider, who would you be willing to trade your own salvation to make sure that someone else would be saved? I think as a parent, you could, you could think of your own children, your love for them. You'd say, yeah, I might do it for my child. I might be willing to do that. But even if you were willing, 
It doesn't work that way. They have to come to faith on their own for themselves and make that decision, as do we all. So why is Paul making this statement? He's making this statement to demonstrate to his readers and to us just how deeply and passionately he desired to see his fellow countrymen be saved. Because for Paul, transmitting the gospel to others was far, far more than just a mere obligation to be fulfilled. It wasn't just a box to be checked for him that, oh, Jesus, you saved me, so I guess I'll give lip service to trying to save others. This wasn't just some small thing for him to say, see, Lord, I've, I've put in a little bit of effort here, and, and so you should be pleased with that. No, for Paul, preaching the gospel, transmitting the good news of Jesus Christ to others was an all-consuming passion that fueled his entire life. It was everything for Paul. And so now comes the penetrating, heart-searching question for each one of us. How deeply, how passionately do you and I desire to see others saved? We all know this is a part of our calling, the Great Commission. It applies to every last one of us. Go into all the world, make disciples, teach them, tell them the good news, baptize them. This is a mission for us all. But how do we view it? Is it merely an obligation or is it a passion? Is it merely a box that we check and say, see, Lord, I've made some token efforts here. Isn't that good enough? Or is it something that consumes our life, something we think about day and night, something that bothers us that people we know are headed on the broad road to destruction? Paul says it bothered him. He had unceasing anguish in his heart It would keep him up at night. Is that us? Or are we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's their problem. I know I'm saved, and I'm going to carry on my merry way. Now, I'm quite confident, I'm quite confident, that if we were to take the time to hook each and every one of us up this morning to a lie detector, to a polygraph, and we had some expert do all the work to, you know, make sure that it was accurate and reliable. And we were, we were asked the key question. Do you care about those who don't yet know Jesus? We were to ask each one of us that question. I'm quite confident that the vast majority of people in our church family would answer yes. And the lie detector would indicate, indicate that we are, in fact, telling the truth. That yes, we do care about those who don't yet know Jesus. But what Paul is getting at here is not if we care at all, but rather how much do we care about the lost. It's not if we care on some token level. He's saying, do you have sorrow for the lost? Do you have sorrow and anguish at the fact that people you know perhaps People at your workplace, co-workers, perhaps your next-door neighbors, perhaps family members, do not yet know Christ as Savior and Lord. Paul is asking, how much anguish do you experience knowing that perhaps someone in your own family, a nephew, a niece, a brother, a sister, a child, a grandchild, has not yet come to faith in Christ? Now, quantifying our feelings is not his main point either. Because the bottom line that Paul is getting at here is this. 
do we care enough about the lost to actually do something about it? Do we care enough about the lost to actually do something about it? What would the lie detector indicate about our answer then? If we look again at verse, Paul, at verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now let's forget about the lie detector. Because even a lie detector can be tricked with some training and practice. But you know who can't be tricked with training and practice? The Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was Paul's witness. My conscience is clear, but not by my own volition. It's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. You can't trick the Holy Spirit. Do I care enough about the lost to put some skin in the game? To actually do something about it? Now, I was a 16-year-old when I first started uh, working at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. I became a cabin leader at 16, and it was that summer that I first had the privilege of leading a young boy into a relationship with Christ. And I was able to share with him the basics of salvation, what the gospel meant. He believed it. I asked him if he wanted to pray. He said yes. I prayed with him, and he made that first decision to follow Christ. I had a few more opportunities like that over the summer as well. Now, much like that, things with kids at Bible camp can be unpredictable, and you never quite know what's going to happen next. But over the course of the summer, I had the chance to lead a few boys to the Lord for a first time. And it was exciting. And it was something that satisfied me on a level that I'd never experienced satisfaction before in my life. There was no thrill, there was no adrenaline that could match knowing that eternity had been, had been changed for someone. The direction, the entire trajectory of their life had changed. And in doing this, it was sort of like in my mind, wow, Lord, I know what that feels like now to have that incredible moment to be used by you to help lead someone into a relationship with yourself. And in my mind, I kind of made a check mark in that box. And I kind of had this feeling like that part of my life was now complete. That, that I'd been used by him to do that, and now it was kind of like, well, I'm good now, and I'll just keep going. And I didn't really feel like there was any more obligation on my part. But then as the, as the summer drew to a close, during a personal prayer time, I've been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit, because, well, Paul does, and it was in this prayer time that I felt the Holy Spirit. And I sensed him, and I, I you know, was at this part in my, my faith journey that I didn't really know the active part of the Holy Spirit in my, in my own heart and mind and my thoughts. But looking back, I know it was the Holy Spirit because the question was asked from within me, would you ask for a greater burden for the lost? Would you ask for a greater burden for those who are lost? Now, I'd heard the term before, but as a 16-year-old, I didn't understand what it meant to have a burden for the lost. I didn't understand. I didn't even really know what it meant. How should I ask for such a thing, to have a burden for the lost? I, I cared about the lost. I was at Bible camp. I was helping lead boys to Jesus. Didn't, didn't that mean I already had a burden for the lost? 
And yet there was this strong prompting that wouldn't go away, ask for a greater burden for the lost. And so I thought, well, why not? And so I simply prayed, Lord, please give me a greater burden for the lost. Amen. And I did, and it was over. And at first, nothing changed. There was no fireworks. There was no lightning. I didn't have any tingling over my body, nothing. But during the next week of camp, it was the last week that I was going to be counseling that summer, there were these boys, these boys in my cabin. <laughs> I'm sorry already <laughs> to get through this. Like many boys, they had all sorts of issues in their personal lives. They came from broken homes. They were tough. They were hard. They were resistant. They tested me to see, did I really love them? And they pushed my buttons and my boundaries. And so I had to pray and, and pray and pray, and I tried to get through to these boys. But as much as I prayed and as much as I tried, it just didn't seem like I could get through to them. And they came to the end of the week, and there was maybe the smallest crack in their armor at one point where one of the boys seemed to soften just a little bit, but that was it. There was, there was no come-to-Jesus moment. There was, no, there was no moment of breakthrough. And that night, they left camp. And to my utter surprise, my heart was so heavy for them that it brought me to tears. It brought me to tears, and suddenly I'm weeping. And now you've got to understand that for me as a 16-year-old, I thought of myself as pretty tough too. And, and I just didn't know what was wrong with me, with me. Why was I weeping? Why was I crying? And I, and I was just praying for them. And finally, the Spirit said to me, and he just impressed on my heart this, Now you have just a small taste of how I feel about every single lost person on earth. And I just had a taste that these boys were going home without Jesus. And I prayed that whatever I had done would be the seed that could germinate down the road. But I knew that then and there they had left without Jesus and my heart was heavy and I wept. And the Lord said, that's just a taste. Because my friends, the Lord doesn't turn it off. When, when he loves sinners and wants them to come to salvation, he doesn't put that on a shelf. He doesn't turn that switch off and say, now I'm not thinking about them, now I'm not caring about them. No, it is constant. God cares, he loves, he grieves over those who are on the broad path to destruction. And here I am, I can be so callous, I can turn the switch off, I can stop thinking about it. I can say, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and carry on my merry way. But the Lord says, no, Danny, have a burden for the lost. And all I know was that that lesson he taught me as a 16-year-old has never left me. It's never left me, and I know that it's a big part of what he was doing in my life to bring me to even be here today. Because in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus summarized his life's mission, the very purpose for which he had come like this. It's our call to worship. In the aftermath of, of Zacchaeus seeking him out, saying his name, saying, I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus, when no one else would. Jesus summarized his mission like this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. Some of you will recognize the name William Booth. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. 
And in the 1920s, he sent some of his Salvation soldiers into the ghettos of Los Angeles with this same mission, to seek and to save the lost. But after three years of work in the inner city, there was simply no results to show for it. And so the workers finally sent Booth a telegram that read, It just won't work. We have tried everything. The gospel is just not being received. A couple of days later, they received a two-word telegram reply from General Booth that simply said, Try tears. Try tears. Sometimes we think and overthink things. We overthink our approach. What do we say? The technical aspects of sharing the gospel. But where is our passion? Where are our tears for the lost? Because I tell you, my friends, that was the foundation of Paul's ministry. Yes, he was brilliant. Yes, he had knowledge that most of us could only just dream at having. But at the bottom of it all was a passion to see souls saved. He wept for the lost. He had anguish in his heart for them. And we know that this came from the Lord himself. So let me just ask you the question. When is the last time you shed tears for the lost? When's the last time? I encourage you and I challenge you today to sincerely pray the simple prayer that the Lord impressed on my heart as a 16-year-old. Lord, please give me a greater burden for the lost. If you pray that with a sincere heart, I'm quite confident today that the Lord will answer that prayer in a way that might surprise you. Lord, give me a greater burden for the lost. See how the Lord responds, but I'll warn you up front, it might change your life. It might cost you something, but it'll be a good cost because it's for the Lord and nothing done for the Lord is ever done in vain. So remember, our witness for Christ is not fueled by obligation, but by passion, just as it was for Paul. Now, secondly, no amount of knowledge is a substitute for repentance and faith. No amount of knowledge is a substitute for repentance and faith. Romans 9, 4, and 5. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, here we see that the fact that no one had more direct knowledge and revelation of God than the people of Israel, but Paul's just just stating it. There, There is no argument. This is a fact. And it's no doubt that here Paul had in mind the wonderful gospel covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promising that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through their descendants and, of course, through the Messiah. And Paul's stating that no other nation stood before God as the Israelites did at the foot of Mount Sinai. The ones who heard the very voice of God as he spoke his good and just commands to them. No other nation on earth had been invited into a covenant relationship with him. No one else had had the Messiah sent through their line. For in fact, the greatest privilege of all was that the Messiah would be born through them. And yet, despite Israel's incredibly privileged position, with all of their knowledge, when their long-awaited Messiah finally arrived, 
they resisted, rejected, and finally killed him. And now there, there is a cautionary note to be struck here for us as well, and for all who consider themselves religious. Because no amount of religious knowledge or action, no matter how correct, can save you. There is no substitute for repentance and faith. Israel had all of the head knowledge, but none of the heart knowledge. It is only by humbly repenting of your sin and placing faith in Jesus Christ alone that can save Israel or you or I. That's it. Because for the Jews, despite all of their knowledge and actions, they couldn't get past their own self-righteous pride, believing that they could somehow earn their own salvation through the works of the law. And yet incredibly, despite their stiff necks and hearts and self-righteous pride, Jesus, listen to this, Jesus still loved Israel. Jesus still loved Israel. And in Matthew's gospel, we catch a glimpse of Jesus' heart, where on Palm Sunday, coming down the Mount of Olives, Jesus stops and he looks down upon the city of Jerusalem. And he weeps for them, saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you, how often I haven't longed to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You were not willing. And yet Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. He weeps for Israel. And it is here that we see the paradox of God's sovereign will, that he is not willing that any should perish and that everyone should come to repentance, and yet it clashes against man's God-given free will to either repent and believe and be saved or reject him and be damned. Jesus says, I am willing. Come to me. Gather under my wings. But then he says, but you were not willing. God's sovereignty and man's free will colliding in this moment. And so the Lord honored Israel's choice. They were not willing. And he would not force them. Now rest assured, if Jesus couldn't or wouldn't force Israel into being saved, then most certainly he will not do the same to us. But even so... Even as we recognize that God won't force anyone to repent and believe and be saved, certainly we can't, right? So don't don't put that pressure on yourself when you're going and sharing the gospel. It's not your job to save anyone. That's the Lord's job. Our job is to tell them, to speak the word, to share the good news. But even so, we can't force anyone. And yet, how can they believe and yet unless they are told? That's our job. Share the good news. And so now, thirdly, despite being rejected, Jesus continued to take that love for Israel even further. And he died for them anyways. Despite being rejected, Jesus died for them anyways. Now, as incredible as it is for us to try to wrap our heads around this, Jesus knew full well that Israel as a nation was going to reject him. And yet he still went to the cross and died for them anyways. Quite simply, God's love for the lost and his plan to purchase salvation for mankind would not be stopped by unbelief. And whether or not Israel would accept or reject him as their Messiah would not stop him from keeping his word and doing everything in his power to save them. 
No price was too high, no pain was too strong to keep Jesus from doing everything in his mighty power as God in the flesh to fulfill his mission to seek and to save the lost. Nothing would stop him. And now we must ask ourselves, what will stop us? What will hinder us from doing the same? From seeking and saving the lost. Are we willing to follow in our Lord's footsteps and do the same for others? Are we willing to put ourselves on the line, put skin in the game in order to bring the good news? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it states plainly, Whoever says they live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now we can try to wiggle ourselves off that hook all we like, but the Bible is clear that if we are followers of Christ, if we claim his name, then regardless of whether we face opposition, rejection, or simply indifference to the gospel, we must walk as Jesus did by boldly and willingly putting ourselves on the line in order to seek and to save those who are lost and to help bring them into a saving relationship with Christ. There's a girl named Valerie O'Connor, a high school student in Britain, Michigan. Now, she isn't in the habit of shoving her 63-year-old grandfather out the door into the snow, and yet that's exactly what she did. She shoved her 63-year-old grandfather out the door and into the snow. Now, context matters, right? Because, you see, here's the context. Her grandpa, by the name of Oki Howard, is in fact glad she did this, because, you see, he was on fire at the time. It happened on February of 2002. There was an ice storm that left many Michigan residents without power, and so Valerie's grandfather had borrowed a kerosene heater to keep the pipes and family members from freezing. Unfortunately, it seems that someone had put something other than kerosene into the heater, gasoline in fact. So when Mr. Howard lit the heater, it exploded in flames, spewing the burning fuel all onto his arms, his hands, and his upper body. He was a flaming torch. And there, Valerie sees her grandfather completely engulfed in flames before her. And so, this is where context matters. She shoved him out the door into the snow and then threw herself on top of him, rolling him around in the snow in order to smother the flames. Valerie then proceeded to call 911 and rode with her screaming grandfather in the ambulance to the hospital. Mr. Howard said later, I thought I was going to die. The pain was so severe, it was like hell. Valerie's heroic efforts, however, resulted in her getting burns as well, on her hands and legs and body. But when asked later what motivated her brave, heroic actions, Valerie simply answered, I just knew something had to be done. So after a moment of shock, I just reacted. And so here we see she just reacted. Why? Because she loved her grandpa. She wanted to do something to help him. And so she shoved her fears aside in that moment. She dove into action so that he could be saved. Now if a teenager is willing to risk her own safety to save her grandpa from a fiery death on earth, how much more, how much more should we be willing to risk sharing the good news so that others can avoid a fate worse than that for eternity. How much more? 
Now, the fact is that most of us will never have to face a situation quite as extreme as what Valerie faced in our witness for Christ. We don't know what the future holds. It's possible, but most of us likely won't. But if we truly love people, if we truly love people, and we truly have a passion to see souls saved, then my friends, let us each individually and together as a church recommit ourselves to the mission of our Lord to seek and to save those who are lost. And to that some might say, but but where is my mission field? I'm not a missionary or a pastor. And to that I say, your mission field is right where you are. Because consider that you have never met a single person who does not need Jesus. And you never will. You have never met a single person who does not need Jesus. And you never will. And so now, today, as we go our separate ways, let those of us who know tell those of us who don't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on top of that mountain, as we bask in your love and the security that we find in you through Christ, that, Lord, it is from that place of love and security that we can go down that mountain into a broken, lost, and hurting world on the broad road to destruction, and we can go into that world without fear Because you go with us. In fact, you go before us. And that, Lord, whatever passion we feel towards the lost, whatever burden, whatever whatever anguish, Lord, even as Paul felt anguish, Lord, it will pale in comparison to what you feel for each one. And so, Lord, we ask, together as a church family, would you give us a greater burden for the lost? Would you help us, Lord, to feel what you feel, to weep for what you weep for. And that, Lord, out of this passion, you would fuel us, Lord, with a much more intentional effort to bring the good news to others right in our lives today, those we know, because we will never meet a single person who does not need you, whether they know it or not. And perhaps it's right now today that we need to take that first step to reach out to someone that you've already laid on our hearts that you've already put on our path for the very reason, the very purpose, that we would be the ones to help lead them into our relationship with you. And so, Father, please help us, because we know we can't do this apart from you. And so, Father, by your grace at work in our own lives, by the Holy Spirit who empowers us, Lord, we are willing to be used by you to be witness to the gospel for the salvation of all who would believe. In your name we pray. Amen.